passage this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 15. Before we, we go there, though, I was reflecting over the passage, which we'll read in a moment. Um, it's, uh, if you want to read along, it'll be a 9.35, or actually 9.30, yeah, starting at 9.35 in your pew Bible, or it'll also be on the screen. But it's reflecting over some wise, I think, advice from some of the, those that had gone before me in what you might call death, and that's called parenting. And uh, some wise, uh, sage advice was to me, you know, choose your battles carefully. You know, you got to pick the hills worth dying for. And, you know, that's probably good advice, not just in parenting, but all around. It's good in the, the, the church to consider. You know, the, uh, some people can get real bent out of shape over which Bible version to use. And... Uh, like, uh, well, uh, there's a whole bunch of different options uh, there, and I'm not sure that's a hill worth dying on. Uh, one uh, that my buddy said to me as I was beginning this journey of parenting, he said, you know, with, with, with his children, he, he decided, now you may disagree with this, he, he wasn't going to die on the, the hill of what their hair looked like. He wasn't going to die even on the area of what they decided to pierce. But under his watch, there were going to be no writing on themselves, as he called it. No tattoos. That was the hill that he decided. I I wonder, too, in the church, um, some of the things that we can hold so dearly, that I hold dearly, that we hold dearly as a church when it comes to our understanding of baptism or communion. You know, what, what order the end times are going to happen. The, the battle between predestination and, and free will or even the battle over church governments. What's the best way, you know, connected, congregational in our uh, day of designer everything. You know, we can pretty much customize everything. I mean, there's, there's a reason that, that the website is called MySpace. It's because we can make it just like we want it. I mean, you know, we got over 500 channels to choose from on the television. We, we don't just get, can focus on sports channels. We can focus on soccer. And not just soccer, but European soccer. And not just European soccer, but British soccer. We've got a number of channels to choose from just to get that specific. Yeah, and so if we start trying to delineate all the specifics that everybody needs to agree with, we all end up with as many churches, to steal a phrase, as there are noses. The, uh, we see it in what's been called in the last 20 years or so, worship wars. Uh, that uh, So many things to choose from, and so many ways to customize our specific experience. So much so that a good friend in the area, a colleague in ministry, says, you know, my, I'm, I'm telling my congregation now, and I'm going to agree with him, that everybody gather for a worship service and focus on being satisfied, being uh, uh, touched 75% of the time. Because 25%, and the, the 25% of the time that the, the worship service doesn't touch you, rejoice that it's touching somebody else. 
You know, it's uh, the doctrinal issues of, of our specific nature can cause, and even our preferences can cause such uh, division even. You know, it was 450 years ago that the, the leaders of the Protestant Reformation were gathering together and they were dividing, uh, d- designing you know, their statements of faith. And they had 25 statements. And uh, leaders from some of the different groups had gathered and they could agree on 24 of them. 24 on the nature of God, the nature of Christ, the, the, the purpose of the church. And they couldn't agree on one of the 25. And because they couldn't agree on all 25 is why from that meeting we now have Lutheran churches and Presbyterian churches. And the one thing they couldn't agree on and they couldn't even agree to disagree agreeably on was communion. What exactly communion meant and what exactly happened with the bread and the cup. Well, in our passage today, as we look at just the impossible task of of trying to be unified as a church with all the options of my space and customizing my experience and even our history, what Paul gives us in our passage today is what is one of the, the, the central elements of being Christian. What truly is our anchor. And as we'll see in our passage, it is the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ and His followers. As we read through this passage, we will see that Paul makes this crucial, central, the anchor of being Christian. Pray with me before we read 1 Corinthians, starting with 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. Dear Father in heaven, thank you again for your written word. And we pray your, your spirit would be at work through us as followers of Christ to continue to unite us on that hill on which he died. Unite us around that tomb that is empty. Unite us today as we read your written word around your living word in the power of your spirit. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen. Now, in Corinth, there was a group of folks who were denying the resurrection. And that's who Paul is speaking to. They were denying even the possibility of the resurrection of human beings from the dead. What they would have held to was, you know, once your body dies, it's done. And you're raised in sort of a ghostly, spiritual form, not in a bodily form. And that's uh, what Paul is correcting. Starting with verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain. And your faith has been in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. 
Because we testified of God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we've hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that this does not include the one who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to the one who put all things in subjection under Him so that God may be all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, so his first point, the first paragraph, verses 12 through 19, if the resurrection didn't happen in real time and real space, if it really didn't happen, if, if Jesus wasn't dead on the cross, heart not beating, brain not functioning, body dead, and placed in a tomb, and then on the third day, raised from the dead in that body in some way, then Paul is saying if that didn't happen, then our message is empty, our faith is empty, we've made God to be a liar, and we are still in our sin, and those who are, have died are still in their sin. That's how central Paul sees the resurrection of Jesus. If the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, then our faith is Meaningless, he says. Now, that's uh, rather stark, wouldn't you say? Rather clear. And doesn't fit necessarily in popular circles of religious discussion these days. I mean, Religion is to be a system of beliefs and practices that help us live better, to be kinder and be gentler. Separate from such stark truth claims. But Paul and the early church based their faith on truth claims. That if they weren't true, then the whole system, the very message they were proclaiming was a mirage, was false. It's pie in the sky. And in, in, in our day, you know, that just cuts against the grain of sort of 
common phrase today that there's no such thing as absolute truth. You know, there's no absolute truth. That's one of the philosophical phrases of the day. You know, you have your truth and I have my truth. It's personal truth. And as long as we live by it, that's okay. But it may even sound good at first. I mean, we, we might even sort of squirm a little bit at, at hearing such a stark, rather blatant, specific truth claim that Paul would be making. So this idea there's no absolute truth, you have yours, I have mine, sounds good until we meet Hitler. Whose truth for him was that he and his people were a superior race. And we quickly stand up and say, no, wait a minute. That's false. And we've got to stop him. Well, then we can say, well, so everyone has their truth as long as they just live in their truth. Well, if you follow, I'll be sort of Pauline here. Now, everybody can live in their truth as long as they live in their truth. But where does that truth come from? That sounds like an absolute truth. Matter of fact, the very statement, there are no absolute truths, is in and of itself an absolute truth, if you're following me. So everyone has an absolute truth of some kind. And what Paul wants to make clear is this is ours. Put put all the other stuff to the side. This is our core central truth that Jesus rose from the dead. And if it's not true, then we're the most to be pitied, he says. It flies in the face, too, of sort of the popular notion of it's not the object of your faith, but the amount of your faith. Now, again, what Paul gets at here is saying, no. If the object of our faith is false, then our faith is useless. But truly, it makes sense if you think about it. I mean, we can have all the faith in the world, If it's false, then it doesn't matter. I I can have all the faith in the world that I can climb up the tower and I can fly home. But that's not going to be the case. I mean, we have examples of great faith in all kinds of powerless objects. You know, the, the, the kamikaze pilot. You know, the... The Confederate army had great faith in what they were fighting for. Died for it. The object of our faith is more important than the amount of our faith. I mean, Jesus even says, just the faith of a mustard seed. Think about, if you're on the, the shore of a frozen body of water, You don't know just how thick the ice is. It can just be the skim of the top being frozen, or it could be frozen three feet deep. You could drive a semi across it. But you don't know. Just a little bit of faith means you you, you step out on it. Does it hold you? There? Yeah? And it might be three feet deep of ice. You could be 
jumping and screaming and dancing on it. But you have just a little bit of faith and you just take a step. You listen for cracks. And it holds you. Then take another step. And another. And if the ice is thick, if the object of your faith is true, then even that little mustard seed of a faith has led you to cross to the other side. But if you got all the faith in the world and the ice is really just a shimmy of ice across the top, you can run on it and you're going to sink because the object of your faith is false. For me, this was crucial when I went off to college. I've shared with, with you before, if you were awake when I was sharing and listening, um, that when I went off to college became a real moment of faith crisis for me. Because there, in encountering people who were atheists and agnostics, who were of every other kind of religious preference and belief and conviction, who, in the nature of college, you know, questioned and challenged me. You just believe that because you were raised in it. So it forced me to do a study myself to say, no, is this really true? Is, is Jesus who he said he was? And in, in that study, in, in that personal pursuit, came back to this very point. That the, the anchor for me in a, in a slew of doubt, in uncertainty, came back to the resurrection of Jesus. And it came back to the, the witness of the disciples who were His followers, who were willing to die, proclaiming that He was raised from the dead. And those that opposed them, of whom there were many, those who that threw him out of their homes, those who threw him in jail, those, those who hung them on a cross, who killed them, to stop them, the only thing they had to do was pull Jesus' body from the grave. Say, look, you say he's risen from the dead. Here's his body. And we'll put a stop to this movement that we call Christianity right then. And for me, that was a crucial, central element to come back to that time and time again. To hold on to one thing and one thing alone, and that is that Jesus is alive. And it's led me from then on. Today, we come to remember and celebrate those who've gone before us. Not just in a generic, nice way. Well, they, they were nice folks. But to celebrate what God has given us in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection. That the faith that God had placed in each one of those that we name today is the faith that is still within us. And the faith that God is good and so powerful that He has raised Jesus and He will raise each one of them and each one of us 
We simply place our faith in Him. We we gather to remember and celebrate based on the sure and certain hope of the resurrection. And that in Christ, those who've gone before us are with Him face to face. The core of our faith then is the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul continues to say, not only is it it's not true, our faith is meaningless, but now that we recognize it is true, let me tell you what is true. And that's when he starts in verse 20. Christ is the first fruit of those who have died. Christ, in His resurrection, is the the first one. He's he's the bud. He's the the leading economic indicator, which we're all looking for these days. And He's the the one that shows us that this is indeed true. And that when He returns, Paul says, all who are in Him will be raised with Him. I mean, Christ is the resurrection is like the, the sun breaking through the darkness after a terrible nightmare. You remember that? You know, when you, you're in your bed and you're too scared to move, you don't know where to go. The, the nightmare was so horrific, you're just sitting in bed waiting for the sun to peek through the window. That's what Jesus' resurrection is. It is the, the peaking of the, the, on the horizon of the sun saying, yes, dawn is upon us. Morning is here. He is that sure and certain hope, that first fruit of the resurrection. Paul goes on in the passage, you know, through one man death came, Through one man, raising from the dead comes. Through Adam, we have died in our sin. And it's through Jesus that we are now alive in our sin. It was so true to those early disciples that ten of the eleven were willing to die proclaiming that truth. And one, the apostle John, was willing to be sent into exile on the island of Patmos. For his whole life. Refusing to recant. Because they'd seen it with their own eyes. They touched him. With their own hands. And for us. It emboldens us. In the same way. As as witnesses. As followers of Jesus. Knowing Jesus is the first fruit. That breaking of the dawn. In the midst of whatever our brokenness and sadness might be. We can go forward. We can go forward in Christ. Because what's the worst thing that can happen? Death? No. Death has lost its power. It's lost its sting. As the Apostle Paul said. To die is gain. For then we get to see Jesus face to face. Now, interesting, if you're still in the passage, verse 23, Paul does give us the order. The order of this resurrection. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. He is that breaking of the dawn to show us that it's going to come. Then at His coming, at His return, those who belong to Christ 
will be reunited with their resurrected body. Those of you that are interested, you can go to 2 Thessalonians 4.13 and Paul even gives more detail on the order of this bodily resurrection for all Christians. 2 Thessalonians 4.13 But his main point here is then in concluding from 27 through 28 that, that Jesus' resurrection is not just the first fruits, not just the sign of the hope to come, but then it is also the demonstration of God's power over our worst enemy, death. That it robs death of its sting and its power and that the resurrection of Jesus has begun the process that He will end upon His return. That all powers will be made subject to Him. All authority, all evil will be made subject to God in Christ upon His return. The key point that Paul is making is the very end of verse 28. That in the end, that when all is finished, all in all will be under God. The resurrection of Jesus is a guarantee to us that God is real. That God is alive. That, that, that God is not only good, but God is the best. That God is not only strong, but He is the most powerful force. And that a day will come when death will be no more. Now, I planted a new cherry tree in the side yard in October. There's a little act of faith in doing that. One, it's not easy work to plant a tree if you're going to do it right. You know, dig a hole and change the dirt in there and really augment the soil and you do all that kind of work with what looks like a dead tree. Just a big stick in the ground. And so put it in there, added the dirt, did all the rest, watered it regularly and waited all winter. I mean, every day I'd go by that tree just to look, please, is there some semblance of life? You know, some bud, something green coming out of this tree. And you have to wait. I mean, it doesn't do any good to inspect the roots. You know, it doesn't do any good to cut the thing in half and see if it's alive. You got to wait. And the good news is this spring started to see green. And I remember that first, it was in the, the, the tail end of March that I started to see some green. And, you know, just walking by it, you know, I walked with fear and trepidation, saw the green start to show and went, walked by it with a little jump in my step. I thought, you know, that's what the resurrection of Jesus is. In the midst of our uncertainty, in the midst of our doubts, when we get faced with persecution, and we get faced with just the pain, the struggle, the death of life that we face, the resurrection of Jesus is that first fruit. It is that little piece of green to know that the work is worth it. That, that tilling the soil is worth it. That, that planting sometimes what looks like a dead stick is worth it. Because in Christ, life is assured. 
in Him, in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection, we know that death is not the end. We know what Paul says at the very end of 1 Corinthians 15. His whole point for all of this. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. power of the resurrection in Jesus Christ tells us. Gives us that sure and certain hope that the labor that we give to the work of the Lord is never in vain. And we remember that. We remember that regularly. The Sunday after Easter as we remember those who have labored in the fields of the Lord, whose labor was not in vain, who fought the good fight, who who kept the faith, who we know now are secure in Christ, not because they were strong enough or good enough, but because God is strong enough. God is good enough, powerful enough even to defeat death. Amen.